Chapter Three of George Washington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. George Washington by Callista McCabe Courtney. Chapter Three. Beginning of the Revolution. Washington made commander in chief of the Continental Army. British forced to leave Boston. 1775 to 1776. At the Second Continental Congress, held May 10, 1775, Washington was made chairman of committees for getting ammunition, supplies, and money for the war. His military knowledge and experience enabled him to make rules and regulations for an army, and he advised what forts should be garrisoned—troops placed in a fort for defense. It was necessary for Congress to take care of the army of sixteen thousand patriots that had hastily gathered in the neighborhood of Boston and to appoint a commander-in-chief of all the forces of the colonies. They had to decide as to who in all the country could best be trusted with this important and responsible position. All eyes turned to Washington. When his name was first mentioned for this place, he, with his usual modesty, slipped out of the room. But he was chosen commander-in-chief by the unanimous, all-agreeing, vote of Congress. When told of his appointment, he accepted though he said he did not think he was equal to the command he was honored with. He refused to take any pay for his services, saying that no money nor anything else but duty and patriotism could tempt him to leave his home. Having one of the loveliest homes in America, he gave up his comfort and happiness, and risked all he had for his country. Congress also appointed four major generals, one of them the brave old Israel Putnam, and eight brigadier generals. There were many men in Congress at that time whose names Americans can never forget. They did many wise things, but none was more fortunate than this choice of a commander-in-chief for the Continental Army. One of the members, John Adams, called him the modest and virtuous, the generous and brave George Washington. Washington's early life and training fitted him in a wonderful way for this great and difficult post. As a young surveyor, he had learned much about the country and how to make his way through forests and mountains. Later, as a commander, he had learned how to fight in the woods and all the secrets of frontier warfare. With Braddock he had learned that soldiers drilled on the parade-grounds and battlefields of Europe did not know what to do when hemmed in by rocks and brush and savage enemies in a new and uncleared country. He had also learned how to value and how to handle the independent, though rough-looking, soldiers of the backwoods. With all this knowledge and experience, with his clear mind and high courage, Washington was the most dangerous foe the British could have. In June 1775, Washington, as commander-in-chief of the army, left Philadelphia for Boston. There was no time to visit Mount Vernon. He wrote to his wife, telling her to be brave, and that he trusted God would soon bring him safely home. General Philip Schuyler and General Charles Lee and a light horse troop went with him. As they galloped along the way, people came out of the farms and villages to see the great general. Washington, now forty-three years old, was very splendid and dignified in his bearing, yet always modest and quiet, a gentleman and a soldier. About twenty miles from Philadelphia they met a messenger from Boston riding a fleet horse and bearing dispatches to Congress. They stopped and heard from him the news of the Battle of Bunker Hill, which had just been fought June 17, 1775. The British had been victorious, but not until more than half their number had been killed, and the Patriots had fired their last round of ammunition. When Washington was told how bravely the militia had stood their ground, he said, 
The liberties of the country are safe. He was not troubled by the triumph of the British, because he felt sure the Americans would win when properly armed and drilled. This news made him more anxious to reach the scene of action, and he travelled on as fast as he could. He left General Schuyler to command the Patriot forces in New York. On July 2nd he reached his headquarters in Cambridge, where he was received with cheers and the thunder of cannon. The men had so little powder that they could not give him a great salute, but they spared all they could. The next day, July 3rd, 1775, Washington took command of the Continental Army under a large elm-tree, which still stands on the Cambridge Common. The Patriot Army was a rather discouraging sight. The sixteen thousand men had been called together without any preparation. They were farmers, fishermen, and shopkeepers. They had very little discipline or order, and were in need of everything—arms, ammunition, food, clothing, tents, shoes. As yet they were not one army, but a collection of separate companies from the different New England colonies. Each had its own regulations, its own officers, and its own interests. There were jealousy and often misunderstanding among them. After reviewing this army, General Washington visited the American forts strung in an irregular semicircle around Boston, within which the British forces were besieged. He found the men camped in rough board shacks, or shelters made of turf and brush, and dressed in the clothes they wore on their farms and in the villages. Here and there was a tent. No wonder the British, in their orderly tents and fine scarlet uniforms, thought they could soon scatter this mixed crowd. There was but one exception. General Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island had raised and drilled a body of men and brought them to Boston under fine discipline, with good tents and clothing. His camp showed what could be done. General Green became one of Washington's most faithful and lifelong friends, and was one of the greatest generals of the Revolution. In contrast with the undisciplined, ragged Continental troops were the trained British soldiers, commanded by experienced generals. They were well fortified in Boston, and the harbor was defended by their warships. They felt no fear of the irregular line of posts with which the Americans thought to hem them in. Washington at once began the task of organizing the army and teaching and training the men. In this he showed skill beyond almost any other man in history. He was beset with many difficulties, among them the jealousy and discontent of some of the officers. There was one general, however, who was always ready to serve in any place and put the cause above himself. This was Israel Putnam, the brave man who was ploughing in his field when he heard the Battle of Lexington. He left his plough in the furrow, unhitched his horses, and galloped sixty-eight miles that day to Cambridge. He was nearly sixty years of age at the time. He was much loved by the army for his bravery and generosity, and all were glad when old Putt was appointed major-general. Washington formed the army into six brigades of six regiments each. He wrote to Congress to appoint at once officers to help him. He wanted an adjutant-general to train and discipline the troops a quartermaster to arrange for all supplies, and an officer to look after enlistments. The men had enlisted for only a short time, and numbers returned home after this term of enlistment expired. So it was hard to keep the army up to fighting strength. The lack of powder was also a very serious matter, and Washington sent to the southern colonies, asking for what they had in store. He at once began to improve the defences and strengthen the weak places. Soon a strong line of fortifications surrounded the city. The strictest discipline was required, and Washington visited the forts every day. 
The arrival of fourteen hundred riflemen from Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland was a great help. Among these were the stalwart sharpshooters under Colonel Daniel Morgan, whom Washington had known in the French War. They were six feet tall and over, and dressed in hunting shirts and wide-brimmed hats. They had marched six hundred miles in three weeks. The winter passed in drilling the army and trying to get powder. Washington was besieging Boston without any powder, though the British little thought that was the reason he did not attack them. All he could do was to cut them off from nearby supplies of food, but they sent out warships with men who plundered the coasts of New England. The people drove their cattle inland and fought the invaders boldly. Knowing that he could not return home, General Washington sent for his wife to come to Cambridge. Mrs. Washington set out on the long journey in her carriage, drawn by four horses, and accompanied by her son and his wife. Her daughter had died in the meantime. Colored servants in scarlet and white liveries rode beside the carriage. Escorts of horsemen brought them from city to city, until they arrived in camp, just before Christmas. It had been more than half a year since the General had seen his family, and his work was made easier by having with him those he loved. The Craigie House in Cambridge, later the home of the poet Longfellow, was Washington's headquarters. Here Mrs. Washington helped him entertain officers and members of Congress. The General was so busy that he was often obliged to leave his guests at the table, while his own meal remained unfinished. The plundering attacks by the British upon the New England coast became so violent that, without waiting for Congress to act, Washington had several armed vessels fitted out. They were commanded by such brave sea captains as John Manley and John Paul Jones, and were ordered by the General to defend the coast and capture British ships bringing supplies from England. As the weeks passed, it grew more difficult to keep up the numbers of the army. The men grew tired of the long and uncomfortable encampment, without any fighting. Had there been any powder, their General would gladly have given them fighting enough. All through the war Washington was troubled and handicapped by these short enlistments, as he had to be constantly training new recruits. In December some Connecticut troops decided to go home without even remaining for their full time. Some took their guns and ammunition. This desertion was a bad thing for the discipline of the army, and sorely distressed Washington. On their way home these men were made to feel what the people thought of their conduct, for no one would give them food and their friends would not receive them kindly when they arrived. The day after they walked off something happened that put new life into the camp. A long train of wagons came lumbering and jolting into Cambridge, with flags flying and an escort of soldiers and horsemen. What was in the wagons? Cannon, and thousands of guns and shot and thirty-two tons of musket-balls. Captain John Manley of the ship Essex had captured a large British brigantine and taken her cargo of munitions. In spite of Washington's efforts to appeal to their patriotism, the soldiers still wanted to go home. They were sick of the discomforts of camp. By January 1776 only ten thousand men were left, and there was danger of the poorly defended lines being taken. But for some reason the British made no attack. During this disheartening time General Greene was a great help with his courage and patriotism and cheerfulness. In February, Colonel Henry Knox returned from the forts on Lake Champlain with a long train of forty-two ox-sleds, carrying artillery and ammunition. He had gone in midwinter after the supplies of cannon and lead captured from the British the year before, and had performed his errand with daring and faithfulness. 
Then ten regiments of militia arrived, and at last Washington and his generals thought they had men and ammunition enough to attack the British. General Putnam had fortified a hill north of the city of Boston. Troops were sent, on the night of March 4th, to fortify Dorchester Heights, to the south from which Boston and the harbor could be swept by guns. That the British might not hear the noise of the wagons and pickaxes, the Patriots bombarded the city all night. The ground was deeply frozen, and the work hard, but Washington was with the men, everywhere helping and encouraging them. When morning came, the British looked upon four forts raised as if by the magic of an Aladdin's lamp. General Sir William Howe determined to attack these new works. A storm of great fury arose, and he waited. The storm continued all night and all day. The Patriots used this time to strengthen their forts, and the British saw they could not hold the city against them. So they prepared to leave, taking everything with them that could be of use to the rebels. They were allowed to embark upon their ships without being fired on, to prevent their burning the city. They sailed away to Halifax. After being besieged ten months, Boston fell into Washington's hands without a battle. Washington was thanked by Congress and given a gold medal in honor of the capture of Boston. End of chapter 3 Recording by Bill Borst